0: Though Jesus is constantly flocked by mobs of people, the people who truly believe in Him, not as a miracle worker, not as a demon caster outer, but as Messiah, the people who truly believe in Him are so few, so small, And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to His own disciples He explained everything. I wonder if you might imagine with me that we travel back in time, somewhere around maybe 1,965, 70 years, something like that, back to a time in which the setting would be Rome, the city of Rome, the most glamorous, gorgeous, largest, powerful city that was on the earth at that time capital of the empire of rome the most powerful empire empire the world had seen to date an empire that ruled all of the civilized world the empire of, empire of rome had no allies it didn't need any allies it only had subjects because it had conquered all of the civilized world all of the known world so imagine that we're back in rome and imagine the setting is maybe the quarters or uh, the meeting room of a man by the name of Tiberius Augustus Caesar. Tiberius Augustus Caesar was the emperor of Rome at this time and he being the emperor of Rome was the most powerful man in all the planet. He ruled over the most powerful kingdom the world had seen up until that time and his every desire was the uh, duty of A thousand or more people, servants that waited on him for his food, for his clothes, they built his furniture. Every need that he had, every desire that he had was their command. And this man who rules the most powerful kingdom on the planet, who is waited on hand and foot, he's here meeting with some of his advisors from different parts of his empire. And they're reporting to him different things and different issues and problems that might be taking place in different corners of his empire. And then comes this one advisor and comes up with this really disconcerted look on his face, really concerned. And he comes in and he says, oh, mighty Caesar, we have a problem. What is the problem? Well, the problem is that there are some people that are meeting. Oh, where are these people meeting? They're meeting in a place called Jerusalem, which is the capital of part of your empire known as Israel. Oh, don't know much about that, but what are these, what are these, who are these people that are meeting? Are these some sorts of politicians or leaders or uh, community leaders or mighty warriors or generals of the army? Who are these people that are meeting? Oh, they're just regular people. Some are fishermen, some are farmers, some are housewives. They're just regular, ordinary people, but they're meeting together. Well, what are they meeting about? Well, old Caesar, they are praying They're meeting together to pray. And that's a problem. Yes, that's a problem. Well, who are they praying to? Who is this mighty God that they're praying to? Who is this warrior king of a God that they're praying to? Well, they're praying to a man whom we crucified. Oh, they're praying to someone who we crucified. Was it some sort of rebel, some insurrectionist, some great leader? No, he was the son of a Jewish carpenter. In fact, some say that he was the illegitimate son of a Jewish carpenter. Oh, and we crucified Him. And they're praying to Him. Yes. And that's a problem. Yes, that's a big problem. Well, what's going to happen? What are they praying for? Or they're praying for a spirit, the spirit of this man whom we killed to come to them. Well, why are they praying for this? Well, they believe that He is still alive. And this is a problem. Yes, this is a big problem. So you can see in that just the contrast between this man Tiberius Caesar, the most powerful man on the planet at the helm of the most powerful kingdom that the world knew. And this person who comes to him to say there is this small band of ordinary regular people who are meeting together to pray. And this is something that we should be greatly concerned about. You can see the contrast between those. And especially if you fast forward maybe two centuries and you see that the Caesar, who is now in control of that same empire about two centuries later, a man by the name of Constantine, would openly and publicly worship the same man that this man, Tiberius Caesar, in our fictional story there, was so concerned about this group, of, or rather unconcerned about this group of people gathering together to pray to him. So that is a story that illustrates for us something of the parable before us, because the parable before us, this parable of the mustard seed and the bush that grows from it, we'll just cut to the chase and say that the point of this parable is simple. It's straightforward. It's easy to see. The point of the parable is humble, small, frail beginnings contrasted with great mighty outcomes. That's the point of the parable. And Jesus illustrates it once again with yet another agricultural parable, which is his favorite type of parable. He tells parables about seeds and soils and plants and vineyards and crops. It's his favorite subject. But in this parable, we once again have now again a seed. We have soil. We have a crop coming up. We have a harvest. But the point of this parable is not to tell us something about the soil of our heart. But the point of this parable is to contrast small beginnings with mighty, grandiose endings. So with that being said, let's turn to the parable now. And let's just begin looking at this from verse 30. And Jesus said to them, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? So Jesus starts this parable with a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question to his listeners, and we know the point of a rhetorical question when a speaker asks a rhetorical question. He's not necessarily wanting an answer. He's asking a question to invoke thought, to engage his listeners, to to invite his listeners to engage with the direction that he or she may be going. The rhetorical question, Jesus isn't looking for an answer, but he's asking this in order to engage his listeners. You see, Jesus, once again, was not telling these parables Just as a way of heaping judgment upon those who didn't believe and didn't yield. Jesus genuinely wants to reveal the Father. He genuinely wants to show the Father as best He can. So He's teaching in parables and He's engaging His audience saying, what shall we compare the kingdom of God? So notice here the comparison. What shall we compare the kingdom of God? Remember our understanding of parables. What a parable is, a parable once again is a laying alongside an earthly reality beside a spiritual reality. We see the earthly reality. We understand the earthly reality. And a parable, think parallel, it lays alongside the spiritual reality, this earthly reality that we do see. And by comparison there, we understand something about the spiritual reality that we don't see. Something that says something like this, like this is that. This is like that in this particular way. And so as we've noticed in the parable so far, that the best way to understand parables is to focus on the one clear, straightforward meaning. Other details in the parable can often lead us astray. Not always. The the details of the parable sometimes are important, but the main importance is to stay focused on the main point because the parable is laying alongside a spiritual reality, an earthly reality. And by nature, the earthly reality cannot explain in depth the spiritual reality that it's related to, but instead it explains one aspect. This is why Jesus' teaching in parables involved so many parables. Many parables will be told in order to, to teach the point. So He says, He makes this comparison. to What shall we compare the kingdom of God? Notice there the divine authority of Jesus. Jesus takes upon Himself the divine authority to teach us what the kingdom of God is like. That is saying to us that this man has the authority to tell us this is what the kingdom of God is like. To what shall we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? Verse 31, here's the parable. It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And so there you go, the parable of the mustard seed. We all are familiar with that parable. But in the telling of that parable, this has been quite the stumbling block for a great many people. A great number of people have found difficulty with this, particularly Bible scholars, Bible scholars, and there's more than one of them, who were at one time what we would call inerrantists. An inerrantist is just a word that means a person who believes that the Bible is divinely written and therefore without error. And so inerrantists believe that everything in Scripture is true, that the Bible is free from errors or mistakes in its original writings. Now, sometimes we find translation issues, things that could have been translated better and different things. But the Bible, as it was written in the original scriptures, is without error. That's what's called an inerrantist. And many inerrantists, more than one, have found a great deal of problem with this very parable. In fact, more than one biblical scholar who has at one time confessed to be an evangelical Christian and an inerrantist has cited this parable as the parable that caused them to cease believing that the scriptures were without error. And the whole problem is the deal with the mustard seed. Jesus says plainly in the parable, consider the mustard seed. The mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Well, the mustard seed, as you may be aware, is not the smallest, seeds on, smallest seed on all the earth. And so therefore, a lot of people have choked on this parable to say, how could Jesus, the Son of God, who supposedly created all the seeds, how could He be wrong about the size of the mustard seed? Maybe some of us have mustard seeds at home in your cabinet, in your spice rack. Anybody have mustard seeds at home? So what size are the mustard seeds? Yeah, about the size of a, of a pinhead. It's a rather small seed. Some a rather small seed. Maybe like a half the size of a BB maybe. Something like that. It's a small seed, but it's by far not the smallest seed. So we would say, well, right there in our kitchen, right there in our same spice rack would be seeds that are smaller. Say, for example, the poppy seed, which is visibly smaller than the mustard seed. So this shows us, doesn't it, that Jesus really wasn't God and the scriptures really aren't without error. However, there's a couple things to consider. First of all, let's consider this. Number one, we don't know what species of mustard seed Jesus was talking about. There are numerous species of mustard seeds, some of them, I have seen pictures of some of their seeds, and some of their seeds are as small as what I would call powder. Some of them are extraordinarily small. We don't know which species Jesus was talking about. But let's set that aside for just a moment. And just really at its face value, this whole idea that Jesus is wrong about the size of the mustard seed really just falls apart when we just simply... Refuse to and listen to this carefully. We refuse to hold the words of this parable to a standard of words that's different from the standard of any other way that we use words. We don't use words like that. We don't use words in such a way that every word from our mouth must be universally true. For example. Had Jesus said to his listeners, let me tell you a parable about the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven is like the poppy seed. You don't know what poppy seeds are. You've never heard of a poppy seed, but the kingdom of heaven is like that. How ridiculous. The mustard seed was the smallest garden seed that the people that he was speaking to knew of. And that's the whole point. For Jesus to have said, the kingdom of heaven is like this tiny minuscule seed that grows in Asia. You've never heard of it, but that's what it's like. That would be absurd. Jesus is relating to people in a way that they will understand and He's referencing the smallest seed that they know of. Furthermore, the mustard seed was a well-known axiomatic parable. The rabbis used it to describe something that's small and then smaller. And then the smallest, it would be a common phrase to say it was mustard seed small. That was common in the culture, common in Jesus' day. Jesus is using a common saying to describe the smallness of something. So it's utterly ridiculous for someone to say that causes me to no longer believe that Jesus could be God or that the scriptures are free from error. Jesus is using words just like we use words which is to say to communicate a meaning in a way that somebody will understand. If I want to drive from here to the north side of Elkin and I hit a whole lot of red lights, I might say you know, every single light between here and there was red. I don't mean, and you don't understand me to mean every single stoplight in the whole town was red. What I mean is they all seem to be red. And that's just the way that we use words and phrases. Jesus is communicating in a way that they'll understand. The smallest seed, He says, is the seed of the mustard plant. Verse 32, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the, notice there, garden plants. Jesus is not comparing it to a tree. He's not comparing it to a a cedar tree or a cedar of Lebanon or something like that. He's comparing it to the garden plants. And in fact, the mustard uh, bush is the largest of the garden plants that would have been native to that area. A garden plant, the mustard seed would have grown to a normal size of about the height of a man. Sometimes they would grow, we're told, to the height of maybe 10 feet or a little bit more. So that would clearly make it the largest of garden plants. We all know the size of typical garden plants. Garden plants don't usually grow taller than a person, but a mustard seed can. he says this is the it's the smallest seed that grows into the largest of the garden plants and it puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade so Jesus's point is the the difference in size the transformation that takes place from this tiny seed to this large plant and is using descriptive phrases to describe the largeness of the bush that it grows into he describes the the Uh, branches that are put out and the birds that nest in the branches and everything. And so his point here is this transformation that takes place from the seed to the bush. Much like we might describe a radical transformation in terms of the caterpillar caterpillar to a butterfly sort of thing. Jesus is not using a caterpillar to a butterfly, but is using something that his hearers would be well aware of, the size of this mustard seed compared to the size of the bush that results from it. So he says that it grows so large that it's big enough, it puts out these branches and the birds of the air make nests in its shade. So he's referencing here, as we already know, he's talking about the kingdom of God because he says he is. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows into this big bush. So the kingdom of God grows large enough, these birds nest in its branches and find shade under its branches. Some people read that and they find a connection there to some instances in the Old Testament when some Old Testament prophets would use the metaphor or the imagery of birds, particular birds making a nest in a large tree. And that was used to communicate the idea of the Gentiles coming into the people of God. Ezekiel uses this. Daniel uses this. If you want to look down in your uh, sermon notes to Ezekiel 17, we see one of the references here, verse 23. On the mountain height of Israel, I, God, will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. Happens again in Ezekiel 31. Happens also in, you remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we, we studied the first six chapters of Daniel and we talked about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You remember his, his vision of the big tree and the birds that nest in the tree. So oftentimes... It's an imagery that's used in the Old Testament to describe the coming in of Gentiles into the people of God. So some people see a connection there and they see that Jesus is describing this kingdom of God that grows to such a degree that even the Gentiles now are coming and finding shade and nesting in its branches. And that may be what Jesus was thinking of. However, if it is, it's at best a side point. The main point, the main focus, the main thing that Jesus is trying to say is this transformation between a tiny seed to the largeness of the bush that it grows into. And so the the birds come and they they make these nests in its shade. And then verse 33, and with many such parables, He spoke the word to them. As as we've said before, Jesus, in order to teach with parables, He used many, many parables in sequence. As we've seen even in chapter 4 here, there's been some five or six parables in a row, depending on how you divide them up. These parables that, that come along beside one another. And one parable works in conjunction with another parable, works in conjunction with another parable, as we reminded ourselves in the introduction there, how all these parables work together to help the listener to understand Jesus' spiritual point. And so... Mark says here, with many such parables, Jesus taught with many, many parables. Probably in His ministry, He told hundreds of parables in such a way that in order to understand Jesus' teaching, this this wasn't the kind of thing that you could just sort of drop in, you'd, you'd see Jesus with some people gathered around him in the temple courtyard. You drop in and listen for 10 or 15 minutes, catch a couple parables, and then go on your way having thought that you understood what Jesus was saying. It didn't work like that. In order to follow Jesus, you needed to listen to all of his parables, how they all worked together and how they taught against one another. And so with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Once again there, we are given this idea of ability and hearing as you are able to hear it. So the theme of chapter 4, as we've seen before, is those who have ears, let them hear. If you have ears to hear, then hear this. That, by the way, is the 10th time in Mark chapter 4 that we have seen an emphasis on hearing. So I think that Mark wants us to get the point. Jesus is serious about hearing what He says. So for the 10th time, as they were able to hear it, If you were given the spiritual ability to hear this, as they were able to hear it, they heard it. Verse 34, He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to His own disciples He explained everything. So here we see that Jesus is teaching. He didn't take anything from the larger crowds. The larger crowds got all the teaching they wanted, but those who came to Jesus for these further explanations got even more. So we see here... This now finishes up this section of the parables. Let's now return back to the parable itself and spend just a little bit of time in understanding the parable. The details of the parable are simple enough to see. The smallness of the seed, how it's planted, goes into the ground and then it grows into this large, large, tremendous bush. And that's the whole point that Jesus wants to get across. The kingdom of God is like that. The kingdom of God is such a kingdom that starts in the most small, humble fashion, but then grows into the largest bush imaginable. So this reminds us of a theme that the scriptures have consistently throughout the entirety of the scriptures, and that's the theme of the small beginnings, the humble beginnings of the kingdom of God. In your sermon notes, there's a number of references here. We won't go through each of them. You can read them on your own, but just make note of the first one there. Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's a verse that's repeated numerous times in the New Testament. You can see some other references there as well. There's many other places that the Old Testament just communicates to us this idea of the small, humble, almost frail in appearance subject to failure. It might seem like just a small, humble beginnings. The stone the builders rejected. That's what God has chosen to have as the chief cornerstone. So we see the biblical narrative is one that teaches us of the smallness of the beginning of the kingdom. But in, uh, in addition to that, we also see just this overarching narrative that takes place throughout the Old Testament. And that is the narrative that we find beginning from literally the first chapters of the Old Testament, continuing all the way through the, old, to the end of the Old Testament. And that's the narrative of a Messiah that must come through His people. He comes to His people by way of His people, but He comes to His people through His own people and those people that He must come through always are on the verge of seeming extinction, of almost being stamped out. At every turn the Old Testament makes, we're just right on the cusp of the people of God being wiped out. It begins from the very beginning when we have, of course, Adam and Eve, and then the two sons that they have, Abel and Cain. One is the godly line, one is the ungodly line. And what's the first thing that happens? The ungodly line kills the godly line. And so they're right out of the gate. We're faced with this seeming disaster that the godly line of God's people has been murdered by the ungodly line. Well, then God raises up Seth. And then, of course, we have the flood narrative where there is just one family among all the evil families of the earth that God saves. And then from that, we go to the Abraham story. God promises that his Messiah will come through the child of Abraham and Sarah, and yet they are elderly, far beyond childbearing age. And then there's the promised son of Isaac. God comes to the rescue and saves with the promised son of Isaac. Well, then God says to take this promised son and kill him as a sacrifice. And so over and over, there's the, the problem that, well, the Messiah must come through this line, but the line is on the verge of being stamped out. Then the story of the judges and how every turn, if you read through the book of Judges, it almost, almost like every chapter, God's people are on the verge of being stamped out. Or then you come to, well, maybe the narratives of, of David, King David, how the Messiah must come from the line of King David, but then David is being hunted down by Saul and on the uh, in danger of being killed. And then there's the whole interaction of the, the battle between David and Goliath. And remember how that was all portrayed for us? David says, far be it for this uncircumcised Philistine to curse the army of the living God. Who does he think he is? And then David says, tell you what, we'll fight one on one. And the, if you win, we're your slaves. And there you go, right there. If David loses that battle, the people of God are enslaved to the Philistines. Over and over again, you can hardly turn three or four pages of your Old Testament without coming across this narrative, this storyline, that the people of God must be the way that Messiah comes, yet the people of God are always on the brink of being stamped out, but God saves them every time. But then we turn to the New Testament and we see that the New Testament picks up this theme and even accelerates this theme because in the New Testament, we see the beginnings of the kingdom of God also to have just such small, humble type beginnings. Think with me of, well, you might know the first disciple that Jesus called to follow. You might know who the first one was. There's a little Bible trivia for you. Andrew. Andrew and then his brother John. So imagine being Andrew. Imagine. Did you get it wrong? Imagine being the first one that's called to follow Jesus and just the smallness of that. Here's one man and then his brother. And so this small, tiny beginnings from how it begins. And then we see that even throughout the ministry of Jesus, we, we just have this impression that although the crowds are so large, that the true followers of Jesus are always so small. Don't you really get that impression? Think of John the baptizer as he's in prison and you can just hear the discouragement in his voice when he says, send a message and say, are you really the one that we've been waiting for? Can you just hear the the almost despair to say, you know, this kingdom of God thing, it just doesn't seem to be taken off. Here I am in prison and it just doesn't. Are you really the one? Or think in Luke chapter 12 when they ask Jesus, are those who will be saved to be few? Can you hear in that question the implication that, you know, Jesus, there's really very few of us. Or John 6, when we're told that many who were following him stopped following him there. You see, there's this paradox. And the paradox is plain and loud and clear in Mark's gospel. And the paradox is this. Though Jesus is constantly flocked by mobs of people, the people who truly believe in Him, not as a miracle worker, not as a demon caster outer, but as Messiah, the people who truly believe in Him are so few, so small, just almost on the verge of being no one at all. And that's the theme that continues throughout. And this is what Jesus is describing in His parable.